I've mentioned, you know, several times. Uh, actually, I don't know if I brought this up on the TOS stuff. I know this has come up in the Enterprise stuff. Some episodes I look up and I'm like, oh my god, the episode's already over. I can't believe it went by so quickly. Some episodes I look at and I'm like, oh my god, I'm only a third of the way through this thing? Why is this taking so long? They're the same length. It is the density and the usage of that duration that really matters, not the length, obviously. Which um, is something I keep pushing as an idea lately because, you know, it's it's come up a lot in the video game reviews. But this is just so boring. Oh my god. Ugh. I mean, okay... I'm at least partially biased, because this is an old hat concept. Okay, we have gained life eternal in exchange for all that makes life worthwhile, right? That's, that's the core of what this is. In this case, it's more on a societal level than an individual level, but it's the same idea. And it, it, it's this machine, and blah, 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 right? And I'm like, what the heck is wrong with this episode? So I pull up my book here, right? I open it up, and I'm like, all right, what do you have to say about this episode? Let's see here. Nothing. No, seriously. There's an entry here. This lists it as episode 20, Turn of the Archons. Original air date, uh, February 9th, 1967, written by Boris Sobelman. Story by Gene Rodberry. Here's the director, which is Joseph Pevney. Here's the guest stars. Here's the summary of the episode. That's it. This is the first time ever that I have actually had literally no information on, on the behind-the-scenes perspective of an episode from this book. That has never happened to me before. <sighs> Maybe that's a sign. I do have some behind-the-scenes info for you. You remember how we mentioned how there were, like, there's a Venn diagram of the original pilots, and only one of them was in the middle? I forget which one, but already we've already covered it. Uh, this was in the first pilot bundle, the bundle that includes uh, Mud's Women, which I guess ha actually has to be it now that I'm thinking about it, Mud's Women and The Cage. So there's Mud Mud's Women, The Cage, and Return of the Archons, were the original pilot things that, that Roddenberry put together treaties on in order to try and still start, sell Star Trek to the networks. Thank God they didn't pick this one. I actually like The Cage, and ironically it has some issues, and Roddenberry's writing style has some flaws to it, which are relevant here too as well. But for the most part, you know, it's okay. Mud's Women was crap, and this is boring. So I guess we got the best possible option there. Naturally, they got to 40 Acres to film this sucker, something we've already seen in Miri, and something we will see again in City of the Hedge of Forever. I, I mentioned, hang on, I mentioned the writer thing, and I kept t I t talking like Roddenberry wrote this. That's because he did, but the actual teleplay was put together by Boris Sable... Sabledon? Sableman? It doesn't matter, because he'll never write anything for Star Trek ever again. And we've talked about Pevney before. So, okay. The episode starts out good. And there's some good stuff on display. Check this out. So first, the music is bad. Okay, I said I, I, I'd start on a positive thing. But I have to point that out. The dubbing is also weird. They dub over the guy's dialogue. Not Sulu, the other one. Sulu looks really good in his outfit, by the way. Like, I wish I looked that good in, in a shirt, you know? Or in, in, a, in a dress uniform. Anyways... So then Sula's like, oh my god, we need, we have an emergency, beam up request, please, it's super emergency, and it's like, okay, sure, thanks, God, he beamed them out of there immediately, okay, and then 30 solid seconds pass before Sulu is finally beamed up. 30 seconds. Now that may not sound like a long time, but in an emergency situation, that is an eternity. To really try and get this across, I want you to imagine that you're driving down the highway at 80 miles an hour or... Whatever that is in kilometers per hour. It's it's fast, right? Reasonably fast. Okay? 
So you're zooming down the highway, and then an accident happens right in front of you. And you now can't take any actions for 30 seconds. So Sulu wigs out, and that's the end of the cold open. You know, I said I said this started on a good element, but I'm already complaining. Hear me out for a second, hear me out. What happens is, then they go down, and they, they start checking out the planet, and they study the people. Now, this is the problem. The script, it has a lot of problems that a lot of Roddenberry scripts has. A little bit too much telling, not showing, a little bit too much redundancy, and a little bit too much just kind of repetition in the way that it's presented. What's really interesting, though, is they go down to the planet and they do something really, really smart. Now, near as I can tell, and I don't know for certain, this is on the director, Mr. Pevney. But I do know that someone had a drumbeat as they were filming out at 40 Acres. And so they'd be like, funk, funk, funk. And what the actors would do, all the extras, they were to take a step every drumbeat. Now, if you're probably thinking, what's the point of that? Think about it. Think about how powerful of a visual element that is and how much that adds to the episode. It's actually probably one of the best parts of the episode right there is the fact that they're all walking lockstep in with the beat that we can't hear, of course, because they, they get rid of the beat in the post. But still, funk, funk, funk. And so everyone looks like they're all moving as part of a clockwork machine. That's brilliant! And that immediately visually gets across the idea of the machine society and shows just how, even if you don't actually cognate the full thing immediately, you can tell automatically something's wrong, something's weird, or something's up, right? Then they bothered to have Spock and Kirk just flat out state that outright. Telling, not showing, and showing, not telling at the same time. <sighs> so then festival starts, and everyone goes wild, and they start carrying around women like sacks of potatoes, to quote someone. Um, they, you know, there's this whole thing where they're just like, smash, destroy, kill. You should be out during festival. Why are you not out during festival? What's wrong with you? Uh, we're, we're visitors from another, from the valley. We're, we're not from around here. Sure. Um, so I'm going to go and skip ahead a little bit in my notes. What's the festival? Now I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, well, the festival is when they all go wild. Yeah, okay. Why is the festival? <laughs> as much as I mentioned that Roddenberry tends to be too redundant, what's interesting is he also never answers this question. It is never stated why Landrew, the machine, which is re-emphasized 15 times because of repetition, to be only interested in the body and the perfection, and, and there must be the, 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 everything must be smooth and in order, right? So why, why the festival? Never answered. Now... For those of you not aware, there's actually a series of novels that were written, uh, novel, novelizations of a lot of the old TOS episodes. I've read a few of them, and I happen to have read this one. And I remembered this, and I looked it up, and sure enough, my memory did not mislead me on here, because they actually do explain Festival in the novelization. I, see, the reason I bring this up is I was sort of waiting for that explanation to show up in the episode, and it never did. Here's the idea. The Festival is how it maintains population control. That's it. That's the big mystery. <laughs> Everyone just goes wild and kills and destroys and steals. And then they go back to normal operating procedures and clean up everything that happened. So, what I'm trying to say is Return of the Archons predicted the Purge, like, 40 years in advance. 
this episode is so... I have so little to say about this episode. We talked about the festival. We talked about how they're incapable of disobedience. Um, they make no attempt to defend themselves. They make a point of, oh, those the, the device that just spe spewed smoke and sparks? Well, that's just a hollow tube. There's nothing in it. So where'd the smoke and the sparks come from? It is then implied that the lawgivers are, in fact, machines. Nope, that's proven to be wrong, too. So what's up with the tubes? Not answered. Moving on. <clears throat> so, th then they have the zombie section of the episode where the people very, very slowly approach them with just random sticks and stones, which is just, yeah, okay, sure. Then we get a nice, wonderful exposition scene where we find out everything that we've probably already guessed. And Kirk takes absolutely forever to make the decision to tranquil one of his own guys who has been taken over by the many. I mean, by the, the body. What's going on with Sulu at this point? Sulu was that too? Ah, oh, whatever, I'm sure it doesn't matter. This is also about when we find out that the ship is being attacked by heat rays. You know what, I don't actually know enough about the physics involved to know about how effective heat rays would be at damaging a ship in orbit. Let's just move over that for a second. So the ship, ship is being attacked by something. It's being attacked so hard and so fast that the ship can't even move because it's draining literally all of its power into the shields, which is actually pretty stupid on multiple levels. Ignoring the, the dozens of reasons why that doesn't make sense, there's also the fact that that never shows up before or after this. The idea that y y you can't just get away from the thing that's attacking you because it's hitting you that hard. Because normally if it's something that's hitting you that hard, it's just going to freaking kill you or get through the shield or whatever else, right? I know, I know. Pilot episode, but it doesn't stop it from being stupid. By the way, this also proves to be, I think, the fifth... No, I think it's the close to the tenth time now that we've had a plot point all about the Enterprise having a decaying orbit. That just keeps coming up. I don't mind that, really. It's just something interesting to talk about. So then there's this great bit where they're talking to this image of Landru, right? Which is also the guy, uh, what is it, Prefect Jarvis, or excuse me, Javis? Jarvis? I don't actually know his name and how it's pronounced because I haven't seen Wolf in the Fold yet, but it's him. The rule of here is love. You know, that guy. Anyways, <clears throat> so we see him. And he's like, yo, I'm Landru. I'm totes awesome. And they're like, I'll show you awesome. And he pulls out his phaser and he's like, I'm going to shoot you. Why am I using this as a phaser? That's a dumb thing to use as a phaser. I have so many things on my desk right now because I've got so many research materials here. We'll use this. Phaser time. And Kirk's like, no, 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 no. It's also mentioned almost immediately, you can't, he can't hear you, because it's just a projection. Okay, that makes sense. Seconds later, Kirk turns to it and says, Landru, listen to me. Wait. I feel like there's an inconsistency there. So then, they're all knocked out by a sonic thing. Sure, that might as well happen. And they end up in the cages that will, that honestly I always mentally associate with Cat's Paw, because that's what I think of when I see those stupid, like, like the kind of pseudo medieval castle-style thing they got going on. You know what I'm talking about. This is also something interesting. They have music from the cage playing every time they show someone who's enamored, who's been consumed by the body. Ah. Now, 
I've talked before about how TOS reuses music a lot, and I, I don't mind that. In fact, it makes perfect sense, and it's exactly what I would do, and the same limitations. What's weird is how they reuse it. Specifically, they use Vina's theme for the body. Go ahead, make whatever joke you want to. They're all good. So then we have to... Hmm. I mentioned the repetition thing. I'm only going to mention one example of it personally, because as much as I like to show my work, giving, reciting examples of repetition just kind of gets repetitive. So all I'm going to say is there's this bit where they say, this is ridiculous. They have no technology. They have no power. They're just guys in robes. Now, this is stupid because we've already seen this to not be true multiple times. Spock then says, no, they are. They have a greater power than anything we've ever seen before. They are truly very dangerous. And I don't know about you guys, but one of the things that really gets me into television, like just grips me, is when a character turns to the camera and says, we are in danger. Especially after they've just been through a bunch of danger. So then Spock gets let out by the third dude, and there's this fulfillment of the prophecy about the Archon, which came by... Oh, God, 2167 is the year. And I don't remember when this episode's actually supposed to be happening because they keep changing their mind on that. No, no, seriously. In Squire of Gothos and uh, Tomorrow's Yesterday, both of those posit a range of time which does not con coincide with each other. So we're still... The, the episodes themselves still haven't actually nailed down when they think TOS is actually happening. Just thought I'd share that. Anyways. <laughs> Uh, so they suck at infiltrating. McCoy immediately susses them out because they suck at infiltrating. I felt so bad for DeForest Kelly having to to, to play ah, during this. Uh, by the way, I hate to nitpick, but everyone's acting is terrible in this episode. No, seriously. I, I don't know if this is on the script, the actors, or the director, or some combination thereof, but everyone's just a little bit too... High school play -y? You know, just a little bit too much. You know what I'm... I'm probably explaining myself terribly. Whatever, this isn't a review. I just wanted to complain about it because I don't like this episode, if it's not obvious. So then, they, they suck at infiltrating. McCoy comes by, blah, blah, blah. Um... 39 minutes into the episode, they decide, oh, you know that thing that happened in the cold open? Maybe we should put a guard on Sulu. That's a good idea. You know what's another good idea? Having a Chekhov's gun that you establish in the very beginning of the episode and never firing it. Good job. Ugh. So then they have, they have to talk down a computer. This is technically the first time that's happened, but it's not really a first because... Kirk has talked down this before. You remember uh, what little girls are made of. He's already logicked his way through androids and computers before. So this isn't actually the first for that, sorry. It's a good thing, too, because the way he does it is terrible. It's like if I walked up to you and said, <clears throat> you're an idiot. And you're like, what? No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You're an idiot. Assume that you're an idiot so I can make the rest of my argument. That's a fallacy. I forget which one. Uh, I think we could just call that the Twitter fallacy. All in favor? But that is the argument Kirk uses here. You are bad. I process this. You must be destroyed. You are evil. That's not arguing a computer down. That's telling it what to do. Then the episode ends. Now hold up. 
There is one other thing I do have to talk about this week. The Prime Directive. Now, I've heard references that it was brought up in Miri. I don't remember Miri well enough. That was actually a couple weeks ago from my perspective because I've been bouncing around in my workload to try and accommodate my real-life wonkiness right now. But I don't remember that actually really mattering in Miri in any significant form. This is the first time they really actually mention the Prime Directive and what they're doing. And I don't mean the Prime Directive the, the computer brings up. Earlier on, they say, you know, the Prime Directive of non-interference... And Kirk then counters, well, that only applies with um, living, growing cultures, is the way he phrases that. This culture is stagnant, so the Prime Directive does not apply. First of all, that's a hell of an argument to go against the Prime Directive. But second of all, well, we've discussed the PD a lot. On my show, it's come up many times in many formats. I've, I've almost every time I end up discussing Star Trek with another Trek YouTuber like Jesse or Laura Loaded or whoever, the Prime Directive invariably worms its way into the conversation because it's such a divisive topic. I think it's horribly inconsistently used, which is one of my big problems with it. There are times when I'm totally down for the Prime Directive, legit. And I do think that the core of the idea is fine. It's just the way it tends to be applied and misapplied tends to aggravate the ever-living crap out of me. Here, they bring up the idea and they say, well, these, this, these people are stagnant, therefore we should get involved. Now, that is a judgment call. But I do think it's applicable in this case. Why? Because they are literally stagnant because there's a freaking machine which is barely capable of even adapting which is running the society into the ground the fact that they still function is is ridiculous oh yeah by the way i should mention this has been going on for six thousand years so in 4000 bc laundry was built <sighs> i'm just going to chalk this up to doctor who syndrome and i just wanted to get that complaint out of the way moving on Anyways, this is a totally dead culture. It's not going anywhere, up or down. Ergo, it is now acceptable to intervene. I agree with that. In the same manner that I think it's okay to intervene in a culture when they are about to die. Like in an example where there's a planet that's about to self-destruct and we can save the people on that planet who aren't even aware of what the concept of a planet is. Yeah, no, I'm totally down with intervening in those cases. Because in both cases, it's about trying to render aid and help in as best of a manner as you are capable of doing. You'll notice, by the way, in addition to shutting down Landru, they also leave behind an expert from the crew with plans to touch up regularly to help get people acclimated to having a culture and a society again. In other words, they do their due diligence rather than just blowing up the computer and leaving. That would suck. All that would do is make a massive vacuum. There's a bit in the episode where the guys in robe show up and they're freaking out. And Kirk pulls out his weapon, and Spock's like, no, 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 it's okay, they just, they don't know what to do. They're not receiving orders, possibly for the first time in their lives. That helps to indicate the nature of this problem, and why just blowing up the computer and leaving would suck. But the fact that they're bothering to actually do real work on the matter and stick with it, I'm down for that. Thus, I'm with Kirk's interpretation. By the way, this is a good time to mention that the Prime Directive in TOS, by memory, is usually pretty chill. It's usually brought up specifically in a manner when it doesn't apply in the same way. You know, when, when the Prime Directive can be ignored, as opposed to instances in later things where it probably should have been paid attention to, or should never have applied in the first place. 
but I'm getting off topic. I do want to mention one other thing about the Prime Directive, and that's that here, despite the terminology of it, I think the phrasing of how Spock said it, the Prime Directive of Non-Interference, look at that sentence for a second. If you look at Prime Directive, as it's usually said, the PD, that implies it is the directive that is most primary. It's above all other law, and that's how it's applied in the modern era. However, look at the whole phrase again for a second. Really dissect the sentence usage or sentence construction there. A prime directive of non-interference. Our prime directive of non-interference. In short, at that point, it becomes more about the lack of interfering and our method by which we do that. Our prime directive of how we don't interfere, rather than the highest role which we hold as sacrosanct. All of a sudden, that lines up and makes so much more sense, doesn't it? Rather than it being an involatile law that everyone must absolutely follow in all circumstances and is the primary thing of all Starfleet and Federation culture, instead it is the main rule of non-interference, of how we interact with pre-developed, uh, pre-warp or pre-industrial civilizations. And all of a sudden it's, it's a lot more understandable and can be applied a lot more carefully like it is here. Now I'm not saying TOS does it perfectly, but I just want to gush about this because while this episode kind of sucks, the fact of the matter is it is salvaged in many ways by some of the cool things like the lockstep thing, but also this very concept and how it is applied here. It is their man they actually had a moment to just peace out. You noticed that, right? Earlier in the episode, they got their man back and they could have just beamed up to the ship and left. Remember that? They don't. At every step of the way, they stay behind to try and help and fix this situation. And I like that. Because we're frickin' Starfleet. We are here to help. I mean, we're here to explore and understand and defend. But really, if we get a distress call, what are we going to do? Immediately peace out? Or try to help them? Now, that's, that's a basic statement, and I apologize for laying it down so basically, because what happens here is more nuanced. What happens when someone doesn't send a distress call because they don't know how to, or they can't? Or the concept is just something that doesn't really occur to them, or they don't know there's anyone out there who can help? What do you do then? Well, you make a judgment call. And that's one of the reasons why the captain of a starship is such a powerful thing and an important thing, and why I keep pushing that idea that a captain should be an officiate of the state. Because then they would be able to make such decisions on the fly with the information available, because they're the one in the trenches, they know the circumstance and situation, and they're able to make that call. Rather than sending some reports back to command and having a group of people in a room who are nowhere near and nothing to do with the actual situation, then come up with the call and then send it out to the captain. Don't mistake me. There's a value in the, in, the, in, in the concept of a council, especially in a thing like, say, the TNG era, where everything is much more normalized and much less volatile. But when you've got 12 Constitution-class ships out there, and you have a unsteady situation, and you're on the frontier, you need that response time. You need a response team, and that's what your ships are, with the captain being the head of it. Ergo, the captain being able to look at this and say, well, given our prime directive of non-interference, we should peace out, and then they leave, or, given our prime directive of non-interference, these people need our help, let's help them. Food for thought. I hope you'll forgive me for going on yet 
another PD rant. I swear uh, that's the only big one I planned for all of TOS. I, I'd always planned to, to go on that rant the moment, the first time it really came up, which is this episode. The PD will be coming up a few more times. We'll discuss it as we go. But that's, that's the big one. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed. I'll see you next time.